whatever is the Beatles now, we're too old and we don't have teenagers, so we won't we won't know about it. Well, never say never. I mean, if when <laughs> when they do the one hundred Gex movie, <laughs> I I don't even know what words you said. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are from San Diego, California. And Cassidy Robinson, you are recording in an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we're going to be reviewing Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Amongst Thieves. Uh, We'll be reviewing Air, the Air Jordans biopic. And for the streaming homework, we are going all the way back to 1964 with the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night, which we watched on HBO Max, or just Max now. (laughs) Fucking, I swear to God, all of these execs, and, and they're like, we could call it Warner, or Warner Max, or like all this shit, and they literally picked... The worst possible option. I know. Just Max. Just the son from a Goofy movie. <laughs> I think even that would be a better option because then you could like have him be the mascot. Yeah, but they can't even have that because it's Disney. I know. So I, I just think Pepsi Max, which is like the knockoff Coke Zero. I mean, I think of Mighty Max. I think of Maxi Pads. <laughs> I think of Take It to the Max. I think, I mean, it's dumb. It's a dumb fucking name for an app. Why take the HBO off of it? Why? Yeah, they've only spent, what, 30 plus years branding that and ingraining it into culture as a whole. And now they're trying to take it away. Garnering a reputation as like the source for the highest quality premium content and yeah, but people might not like that. So yes, right. cause I'm subscribing for all the discovery content. Right. Well, I think that's the idea is you have too many voices in the room who are arguing about the direction of the branding because some of them came from discovery and they don't want to just be an addition to HBO. See, they want to be think- their own thing. I, yes and no. I think that the problem is that David Zaslav was the CEO of Discovery, and now he they bought out HBO, they bought out Warner, and so the problem is that the weaker brand owns the better brand, and but they're like, well, yeah, but we have this whole brand, so that's gonna be our priority, and it's fucking stupid. Yeah, well, it, we'll see how long it lasts. I I kind of feel like it might not even make it to completion before they change their mind again. Let's hope. What do we want to start with today? Let's. We do have some movie news. We haven't done that in a while, and there okay. has been a lot of stories popping up. Sure. So I just wanted to pull open our Twitter where we posted. 
all of our news. And if you're not following us on Twitter, you should be at MacGuffinPod. Paramount sets to remake Hitchcock's Vertigo starring Robert Downey Jr. Okay, so my instant reaction is sure i don't know i i'm here's the thing if you're gonna remake hitchcock you have to do it better than hitchcock so good fucking luck right um and if it's not then just i feel like kind of just nobody will care um so to me it's it's not really like a high stakes thing so i you know i don't really care it's like they remade psycho shot for shot and it doesn't take away from the legacy of the original, you know? Right. Yeah, I, I don't understand the choice personally. I mean, partly I'm a little happy to see Robert Downey Jr. do something that is a little edgier than a Marvel film. Well, he's going to be in uh, Oppenheimer. Is he? Yeah. Oh, okay. He, he has a part in it. Okay. I well, think he plays that. the atomic bomb. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, that is pretty edgy, but <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't see a necessary need for this. Uh, and you're, you're correct. Every time they attempt to remake a Hitchcock film, it kind of goes nowhere. There was a Rebecca remake a couple years ago. That was like a direct to streamer. I didn't hear a lot yeah. about that. I mean, um, you do have. Uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s name attached to it, so it's gonna get, and it's one of Hitchcock's like most classic and loved films. So I think it's gonna get a little more heat and attention just for the sake of of that, uh, right? But I I don't know. At best, I think it'll be fine. At worst, it'll just kind of be very forgettable. I think. Right. Well, you remember when Gus Van Sant remade Psycho? And yeah, how well that went. That's what I was saying. And and it got a lot of attention because, you know, of the publicity of doing it shot for shot and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody cared. Right. It didn't do anybody any favors, least of all Gus Van Zandt. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I can't say that I'm excited about it. I think one of the things about Vertigo that makes it Vertigo is everything about it. Like, it's mm-hmm. not just... The story, like the story's cool enough, but it's the atmosphere, it's the lighting, it's the time period, it's the kind of weird dreamlike quality of those long follow shots and those long takes in the car with Jimmy Stewart and, and yeah, I, I might get canceled for this, but, uh, Vertigo's actually in my, in my hall of shame. You should watch it. I, I mean, I haven't seen it yet. Um, I I would probably like it. I I love old Hitchcock movies, so I you know it's been on my list forever. But um, yeah, and they, I mean, I think it's a height of like Technicolor. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kind of like Douglas Sirkian sort of looking heightened reality in like the set dressing and you know the colors and that like all that stuff which. I guess they could do that again, but why? Well, and it's, I, I mean, again, I haven't seen it, but it is one of his most known, uh, if not most revered movie. Um, although, I don't know, that's 
a hard thing to say. But um, my point is, you know, it, that's like remaking Jurassic Park. or You know what I mean? Like, it was just such a thing that that director did at that time. That mm-hmm. I mean, even that's different because Jurassic Park has a, a novel as source material. You could get a different take on it. But you know what I mean? It's It was just such a that director's vision that it's it's hard to recreate that. Right. And there's been a lot of directors who've attempted to make Hitchcockian movies like the movie Phone Booth or um, uh, Disturbia, which was kind of like a teeny bopper version of Rear Window. And Mm. I think that's more the way to go is to kind of pull different things and kind of create a pastiche rather than just remake a thing, Uh, especially something like Vertigo. I think there's other Hitchcock movies that wouldn't be as problematic. All right, moving on. Uh, Ryan Coogler to develop a new X-Files series with a diverse cast. Slow clap. Is that a a positive slow clap or is that a uh, sarcastic slow clap? No, I'm in. I feel like the X-Files as a property has, I, I feel like it needed or like a reboot or a re- launch when they did the um the series continuation um Mm -hmm. which was what like five years ago six years ago there's still juice there right and it, it, it is a little weird because so much of the first series hinges on Duchovny and um Jillian Anderson's chemistry right like like that's that's the team you know after uh Duchovny left it just wasn't the same show um then when Jillian Anderson left it really wasn't the same show uh so I I do think you know you have to get your stars right um I think if it uh, it it has potential I think to be a reboot or a sequel I think either way you could go with it just you know full this is a brand new thing um I just hope that they focus on what people liked about the first X-Files, right? The monster of the week. Um, uh, You know, the lore stuff was okay. Right. The The overarching stories. Well, and the way it was parsed out was strange, you know, because there would be gaps in the story. Um but I, I think as a property, uh, you know, and this is from an ex-head. I watched the entire fucking series, plus both movies, even the shitty movie with uh, Billy O'Connell. Um, I, I'm here for more X-Files content, I think. And Ryan Coogler is, I think, a, a good enough producer and filmmaker that I think he could take it in a new direction that separates it from the original series, but gives it its own legs as well. I'm excited. Okay. Well, I am reading this on bloody disgusting. And this, this line has me a little bit more excited about it. It says uh, TV line had explained in 2020. So this is a little far back. Who knows how much has changed sure, since, yeah since then but it says 
The potential series will center an office full of misfit agents who investigate X-Files cases too wacky and ridiculous or downright dopey for Mulder and Scully to bother with. They would essentially be the X-Files B-team. That was... uh... That is an older pitch. That was actually a proposed animated series that I believe is still in development. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think this would be like a new flagship X Files series, sort of like, uh, sort of like how Paramount's doing with Star Trek. I feel like they're trying to sort of build out the world of the X Files beyond just Mulder and Scully. Um, so I think this would be like a new flagship show. Mm-hmm. And the other the other one that you're talking about, I think, was meant to be more along the lines of like an animated series like uh, um, Lower Decks or something like that, which I again, I feel like the world of X-Files, there is enough uh, material there that I think we could really fill the world out and have a lot of fun with. All right. Uh, lastly, uh, this is the news that. It's kind of been in the works, but just was announced officially today. HBO Max, or just Max, has ordered a new Harry Potter scripted television series to be a faithful adaptation of the iconic books. What the fuck are we doing here? What the fuck (laughs) are we doing? I I mean, this is such a, a, a fumble on Max's part. Uh, Everything about this sucks. (laughs) Fuck J.K. Rowling. Fuck her and her transphobia. So the Fantastic Beast line failed. So we're going to reboot. Yeah. So we're going to reboot what we know works, but none of the original actors will come back and because they don't want to be associated with J.K. Rowling anymore. uh, So none of them will come back to do a Cursed Child movie. Uh, So let's just restart the whole damn thing like fuck off with everything about this it's Mm -hmm. not an old enough franchise they didn't leave enough out of the books to justify this this idea of like missing content um right well the idea that i read initially when they were just kind of talking about doing this before they officially announced it was each season would be another book or year sure yeah but like the the first the first i mean at that point you're gonna be you're going to be adding things that weren't in the book yeah yeah exactly and how well did that work out for fucking game of thrones uh you tell me i don't know not great (laughs) um I, i mean granted Harry Potter is like a full completed series, but like, Mm -hmm. why, why are we investing any time and money into something that already exists? Isn't that old as an intellectual property. And when there's just like buy a new book series to adapt, Brandon Sanderson is a massively popular fantasy author, right? Like he has tons of books Just pick, pick one of his series or, Pick the Discworld series or pick whatever the fuck else. Like, right. I get it. You want you want the new Harry Potter, but the new Harry Potter isn't the old Harry Potter. That's what's so fucking stupid about this. Like, who is this for? The the 
fans who grew up with Harry Potter already have the movies. They already have the books. Uh, you might get some better CGI. Sure. Okay. But probably not because it's a TV series. So it's not going to have the budget of the movies. And it's just like those movies, like, just kind of got it, you know? Like, are you going to redo the theme song? Uh, how, how are you going to recast all of these iconic roles of old British actors who's already passed? They'll find new just, ones. Yeah, exactly. But fuck off. Like, nobody cares. This is this is more of a wet fart than Amazon's Lord of the Rings series. At least that was new material. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a new thing. At least it was a prequel se- series. This is literally, we're just going to remake the fucking thing for uh, uh, the most cynical of cash grabs. Yeah, which is all it's about. It's about uh, getting your hands on a known property because I believe they still have all of WB properties, correct? Yeah, it's probably more about keeping the rights than anything else. Right, and this would lock them in for at least 11 years or whatever. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know if if... I mean, never underestimate how much fandom there is for a thing and well, people sure, might but, be there for it. But I, I mean, obviously but, I'm not, but I'm kind of like not the right age for Harry well, Potter exa- fandom anyway. But that's, that's exactly my point, right? Who is this for? Because again, the people who grew up with the books, like they got their Star Wars version of it, right? Like, mm-hmm. they're not remaking Star Wars, e- even though, you know, say what you will about The Force Awakens, uh, they- they're still, like, trying to create new stuff. Like, let's... Sure, you want to do something with the wizarding world or whatever, and uh, Fantastic Beasts didn't work out, so let's go beyond Harry Potter, right? That, I I would be, like, mildly interested about, even though... J.K. Rowling's name has just so fucking soured that world for me. Um, but to just redo the series, that's so fucking stupid. It's just a, I don't know. who. I don't think anyone's excited about this. And it, it also could be one of those things where people are not excited right now. But as soon as they start seeing trailers and promotional materials and casting rumors, then they can... Uh, AstroTurf, some sort of fandom for it. You know, start previewing things at Comic-Con. Like I said, don't underestimate people's willingness to glom on to something that they're very familiar with. I mean, sure. I I, I do get that. Like, that's kind of what fandom is. But I, again, I feel like just her shittiness has already alienated such a huge core of her fan base already and just the the complete lack of anything creative involved in this project i just think is a huge bummer right well i mean there's always the daily wire fan base who can come and fill the gap (laughs) i guess yeah all right well that is the movie news uh, let's go ahead and start talking about these movies, and we'll start here with Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Amongst Thieves. Here's the thing. We're a team of thieves. 
And when you do this, you're bound to make enemies. Sometimes those enemies come looking for revenge. Truth be told, we help the wrong person steal the wrong thing. We didn't mean to unleash the greatest evil the world has ever known. But we're gonna fix it. So how do we pull that off? Uh... Figure it out over a drink? Probably best. Yeah, since you saw the pop-up at Comic-Con, why don't you go ahead and describe what is going on in Dungeons & Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves? Uh, yeah, so Dungeons & Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves is... Uh, it starts out with Pine playing Edgen and Michelle Rodriguez as Holga. And uh, they're this, you know, sort of Han Solo and Chewbacca-like pair. Uh, they're locked up in a dungeon for this heist they pulled because as the trailer stated they were you know part of a band of thieves um and they pulled this heist for uh chris pine in an attempt to resurrect his his dead wife and uh the mother of his child they managed to escape the dungeon and they decide to go and and find his daughter and explain uh, you know, exactly what happened. And uh, upon their release, they find that uh, one of their teammates, uh, Hugh Grant, has set them up and benefited from their capture. He made this deal with this evil wizard chick uh, played by Daisy Head, I think. And so he has, like, come into all of this power. He's the leader of this city. And uh, uh, tries to send them back to prison. They decide that they need to sort of get the crew back together um, so that they can steal this trinket back and uh, and rescue his daughter, even though she doesn't she isn't aware that, that she needs rescuing. Um, yeah. And then from there, they put a team together and they they do the damn thing. Get into adventures. Yeah. A series of adventures. Um, you also have Sophia Lillis as Doric, a changeling. Um, she can change into different animals. Mm -hmm. uh, Justice Smith as a mediocre mage named Simon. And is it Reggie or Reggae? I think Jean it's Page? Reggie Jean Page. Uh, yeah, from yeah. Bridgerton as this sort of perfect paladin. Right, who's uh, ageless, he's been around longer than any of them, and has a great reputation for helping people who are stuck in predicaments, such as them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't really know what to expect going into this. I know that there was an attempt at a Dungeons & Dragons movie before this. Uh, yes, I saw it. Have you not seen it? No, I was going to try and fit it in. The, I should have uh, made that my fucking streaming homework. It's actually not streaming anywhere for free right now. But, nah, it's uh, not worth paying for. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember 
Well, who was in that? That was uh, Marlon uh, Wayans. Wayans. Yeah. And um, uh, what's his name was the bad guy? Um, Jeremy Irons. Oh, yeah. Yes, Jeremy Irons. And it is one of the worst performances I've seen him do. Right. <laughs> and the kid who played Jimmy Olsen from the Real Adventures of Lois and Clark. <laughs> oh, was he like the, the main pretty boy kid? Yeah, I think... It, was he in Sliders, or am I confusing him with Jerry O'Connell? You're anyway, confusing him with Jerry O'Connell. <laughs> he's, yeah, he was like the poor man's television version of Jerry O'Connell in the 90s. And uh, so I remember there was that version. Of course, on this podcast, we talked about the TV movie Mazes and Monsters, uh, starring and Tom was, Hanks. <laughs> yeah, and there was a, um, a cartoon in the 80s, which mm-hmm. uh, there are some people that are, you know, that was like, their Saturday morning cartoon. They have a lot of um, nostalgia factor for it. So D&D has tried to make the the jump before. There's also, there's been a, a few uh, successful video games, right? Like I think, wasn't Baldur's Gate uh, set? Like, the, you know, there's there's been a bunch of sort of video games set within the D&D universe of like, sure. you know, action RPGs and stuff. So this isn't their first attempt at turning this into, you know, more of a multimedia franchise. Right. And I think when you're talking about this type of high fantasy, whether it's Tolkien or whether it's uh, Warcraft or whatever, there's a lot of crossover with that type of material as well. So I don't oh, think yeah. you have to be a, a hardcore D and D playing dice roller to get what's going on here. I think, in fact, as a person who has not played a lot of D and D, I was going to approach you and ask how, how many Easter eggs is there for the people who do play? Like how much of this is specific to that world? Um, well, okay, that I actually think is uh, brings up something I wanted to say in favor of this movie. I think they do a really good job of kind of taking the Star Wars approach to this. Mm. And and a lot of this stuff just sort of exists in the world, right? So uh, is it an Easter egg to include a, a gelatinous cube? And not really. That's just a thing that exists in this world, right? So... If we're talking about all the monsters and stuff that they reference, I mean, there's plenty. It's it's chock-a-block filled with actual creatures from the games, like a Dragonborn and the weird panther thing. Like the, you, None of those were made up just for the movie, but that's the benefit of Dungeons & Dragons as a property, right? Is you already have all the world building done. The problem I feel like they have had in the past is... Dungeons and Dragons as an experience is you roll up a character and you become a part of the adventure, right? So there aren't really well-known established characters to set a movie experience around. And I, I, I think right. that's where in the past they've had issues is it comes off feeling, you know, like in the, the previous movie they did, all the characters just came off feeling very generic, except for Marlon Wayans, who just felt very like Marlon Wayans. Um, <laughs> so it didn't feel like there was anything to sort of attach to. And yeah, and I, that's what I liked about this movie is they have this world, so we're not going to spend forever explaining it. 
if you know, you know. Otherwise, it's just what the world is, right? Right. And, let's and like focus I said, on- it, it's 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 closely tied with uh, you know standard fantasy lore that we've seen a thousand times anyway. So sure. you understand the concept of dragons and wizards yeah. and. You know, that, it's, that it's enough that uh, I feel, you know, the uninitiated aren't going to be confused by. They're not going to be right. like, it's a dragon, ah, paladin, ah, you know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah, I feel like pop culture is versed enough in fantasy tropes that. Again, I, I think what they did that was successful for me was they just used all of that as background, as this world to exist in right you know so let's you know let's make this character uh a dragonborn uh just because we can and it makes the world feel more again i it felt very star warsy but fantasy version to me yeah i felt a lot of things uh in the dna of this movie so uh this was written and directed by um, Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly. John Francis Daly, who played Sam Weir in Freaks and Geeks. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who? <laughs> he also did the movie Game Night, uh, which I did not see, but it has its fans. Oh, yeah. It was a, that was a decent movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and this, I felt uh, there are, there has a lot of the, the, the character dynamics of a Star Wars where not everyone is perfect. Not everyone's great at what they're doing. They're, you know, the heroes of this particular well, story. But, the, you know, with the exception of, like, a Luke type, there is no, like, like uh, Messiah or the One or anything like that in this. But, um, you know, like, there, there's a scene in the, in the movie where, they, where they're in a, a dungeon mm-hmm. being attacked by a dragon. Um, and they get caught in this small space together. And I'm like, this is the trash compactor scene from a new hope. Sure, like yeah. this is exactly that type of, uh, well, it's dynamic it's funny that you say this movie, ha- you know, has a lot of its DNA from star Wars, star Wars. The first one is just a D and D campaign in space, particularly the, the group dynamic of like, right. You know, we have a knight, we have a rogue, we have a, a heavy with, you know, Chewbacca's like an orc kind of thing. Uh, we have a wizard, like all of those archetypes are are represented. Um, so I, I think it's, it is fitting that, you know, let's make a D&D movie that feels like Star Wars that felt like a D&D game. Right. And I mean, there's that going on. I felt uh, sort of in the tone of it and the dry wit of the dialogue. Um, I felt a little princess bride more than once. Sure. Yeah. I felt a little princess bride and, and kind of uh, an MCU thing, um, which take that how you will, but you know, just like the, we're going to have an adventure, but we're not going to be afraid to poke little jokes and, and just, just tonally. I, I felt a lot of the, the MCU's influence. Right. I, yeah. So those, those kind of fanboy 1.0 touchstones through the prism of a post MCU world. Um, yes. All sure. of which is to say, 
I like the movie quite a bit and was pretty entertained by it, especially given the fact that it's like two hours and 15 minutes or maybe even longer, two hours and 15, yeah, which can run a little long for this type of thing, especially a movie as light as it is on mm-hmm. content. Um, but I think that I like that about it. I like that it's character centric, first, first, most yeah. foremost, and that you know, we have like a, a heavy there with with uh, Daisy Head as the evil wizard gal. But, you know, you do have Hugh Grant in there as, as kind of the uh, bumbling bad guy who's being used. I don't know. Everyone just kind of has their place. All the set pieces are just the right length. Yeah. Uh, they can't they keep things moving. They don't. Like kind of the problem with the later MCU movies, like the last Ant-Man movie, where they they just keep building and building and building on one action scene to the point where it just becomes boring and you just want something new to happen. I felt like this constantly found interesting and fun ways. Um, Some of the magic in the movie, there's a lot of it you sort of just, you know, this is a movie don't think about it too hard kind of stuff. But uh well, well, there's okay. some inconsistencies. Like, like magic? Because I'm gonna I bet you that there is a fucking rule book that they were pulling from where the magic does have certain limits. I I will say uh that Doric, the the shapeshifter, yeah uh, I do I will say her cooldown levels were fucking impossibly low like she would just shift him from thing to thing to thing where if you were in a game of D, you sure. know you could do it like once per turn or whatever so they, they played with the rules a little bit but i still like that everything felt fairly grounded like it, it and 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 i don't mean grounded in like uh oh this is realistic and gritty but in a way of like there are rules and mm-hmm. the characters know them you know like I'm right. not just going to expect that somebody can turn the entire city invisible and flip it in space or whatever. Uh, it doesn't feel like willy-nilly nonsense. Like, everything has sort of an internal logic to it. Yeah, I I, I mean, there's a, at one point there's a portal that's in play, and I, I kind of felt there was a little inconsistency there um, when they first describe what the portal can do. Versus what it ends up doing later in the movie. But again, I wasn't stuck on that as a detail too much. Sounds like you kind of were. But yeah, there's a lot of fun performances in here. You get a fun uh, cameo by Bradley Cooper. Um, <laughs> spoilers. I feel like that's a spoiler. Uh, but I'm not yes, going to say as what or doing what, but he's it's a, very, it's a fun little moment. A blink and you miss it kind of cameo. Uh, and I had fun. I think that's all this movie's really trying to accomplish. Yeah. I'm not going to say it accomplishes much more than that. It isn't intensely memorable, um, but, you know, it's a good time at the movie. Yeah, I, I think... Um... I think it doesn't need to be like when you're in it, you're in it, you know, like I, I feel like they're accomplishing exactly what they set out to do. And as an audience member, I got exactly what I wanted out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what matters the most is that these these characters are fun to be around mm-hmm. um, and they well, and it, have it, it doesn't good take 
chemistry as a cast. It, yes, it, and it never takes it to itself too seriously, but it also never, never sacrifices the world for the humor. Um, right. You know, kind of the way, uh, uh, kind of some of the issues with uh, Thor Love and Thunder, right? Where they have right. this whole established reality, but there were times when they would just sell characters out for the joke. I appreciate this doesn't do that, but it also doesn't, it's not this like dreadfully serious thing. It's, it's a pretty breezy adventure movie. I, I forgot how long it was even uh, until you just mentioned it because I, I just was enjoying it the whole time. You know, it feels like the type of movie you'd see on a Sunday matinee and, yeah. and totally have a blast doing that. I more or less recommend it. Oh, I, so. I absolutely recommend it. And I also think, uh, I can't imagine somebody being like offended by this movie. This is like, I, I feel like this is what you want when you are trying to sort of mass market a family adventure movie. You know, it's never too mm -hmm. dark or too scary, but it also doesn't, you know, it's not, it it's also doesn't feel like it has kid gloves on or anything like that. Um, it just, it, it's, a, you know, about as mass appeal as you can have, I feel. Yeah, while also being very specific in its aim to entertain. Yeah, yeah. Um, I what one idea I wanted to to put forth is in a way to to kind of keep the tradition of D and D alive mm -hmm. in the material because again, outside of the title, nobody, you know, you could call this pretty much anything. You could just call this Honor Amongst Thieves. And nobody would know the difference. Sure, but I but I also feel like if they want to establish a larger brand, right? Like mm -hmm. they could. I I feel like there's potential here with D and D to do a, a completely different standalone adventure, right? Like, what if you do D and D uh, uh, Bounty at Sea or whatever, and it's a it's a D and D pirate story, or mm. you know, it has completely as long as they take the time and the care to write the characters uh, well and to cast the, you know, cast the ensemble. Well, I would be totally fine with standalone movies. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, you know, that that's kind of what like star Wars needs to start doing is getting away from these sort of centralized characters that I, I, I feel like again, D and D has the world there as long as they, continue to, to craft them with craft the stories with care, they could absolutely do it that way. Or I wouldn't mind seeing, you know, I liked these characters enough. I wouldn't mind seeing them in another adventure. Uh, I feel like either way they go with it. I'm, I would be kind of fine. Yeah. 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 I was wondering, would uh, something I thought that they might do, which they didn't do is, is kind of, do the thing where you introduce, you know, uh, kids in the modern age playing the game and then go from that into story. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. And I, I thought maybe that would have helped it feel a little less generic as far as the fantasy world building goes. But mm. that 
not like a brand new idea either. I mean, that could, you know, there was a Dexter's Laboratory episode that did that. So See, I, I feel like it actually would make it feel more generic. And I don't know. I, I, I'm glad they did not go to that approach. I, I, I don't know. I didn't feel that the fantasy elements were generic, but maybe that is because I played enough D&D that it was... Uh, you, you, the stuff that is... D&D specific was recognizable to me. I don't know. There was um, uh, one Easter egg, though. You mentioned Easter eggs earlier. Uh, they There's a scene where they sort of have to compete in this dangerous um, game uh, labyrinth maze kind of thing. Yeah. And there's there's like various teams within that competition. And one of the teams, uh, all of the characters are dressed in the costumes from the eighties cartoon. So I thought that was kind of a fun, oh, okay, uh, yeah. fun nod. Uh, yeah, I give it a B plus. I, I feel like, okay. I, I feel like as a movie, you're absolutely right. Um, for what they were going for, I feel like it's an A. And the only reason I make that distinction is we, you know, we tend to grade like the Marvel movies on a curve uh, I feel like the superhero genre, like this movie fits within that category to me, kind of, of, you know, trying to be this mass appeal um, summer fantasy adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, so grading on that curve for the genre that it's in, I'm going to give it an A. Um, but just as a movie itself, I agree. It's a B plus. All right. Uh, let's uh, watch the trailer for Air. If you've been to the theater in the last few months, you've probably seen it. You definitely have. 1984 has been a tough year. Sales are down, our growth is down. Sonny, I brought you in here to grow the basketball business. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA All-Star shoe. There's nothing cool about Nike. You would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. I can tell them the one thing the other companies can't compete with. Our basketball division is terrible. I do not love it. This is where you come up with a brilliant idea that no one else can see. Let's hear it. I got it. I found him. Who's that? Jesus? Can't afford it. I'm willing to bet my career on one guy. My name's Sonny Vaccaro. I'm with Nike. What's the plan? We build a shoe line around just him. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. Uh, like we were saying before, if you've been to the theater in the last few months, you've seen that trailer. Um, they've been playing it incessantly. For some reason, I thought it was going to be a direct-to-stream movie. Well, I believe it was produced by Amazon, right? Right. So, I mean, you know, maybe that was the original intention and then the... You know, it had a star-studded cast, so it got a little bit more heat on it. Um, mm -hmm. Things started to loosen up for theaters, and they could expect, yeah. you know, a bigger return than they might have otherwise. Uh, this is written by Alex Convery, Convery and directed by Ben Affleck, mm -hmm. you know, which was originally what kind of brought my interest in it. Uh, it stars uh, Matt Damon as Sonny Vaccaro. He's a uh, executive working at Nike. 
and they're trying to sort of find their branding amongst all the other shoe brands that are blowing up at that time. Adidas are on top. They got all of the major basketball players and sports affiliates repping their brand. You have Run DMC doing a song about the Adidas. Converse is starting to come come up as well. And they're sort of left with the C and D list uh, shoe deals that they can sign. So uh, Sonny, who we see early on in the film as a sort of high-stakes gambler in Vegas, uh, takes that sort of initiative to, uh, is it Seattle or Portland where? It's Oregon. Oregon. It's, it's yeah. like a Beaver, Oregon or Beaverton. Beaverton. Yeah, yeah. Which is just right outside of, right, right outside of Portland. He takes his initiative there and decides to put in all his chips on Michael Jordan rather than splitting up their budget on a few people they know they can get. They try and get the un the unattainable. They try and get this new hot basketball player who they expect big things out of, um, who's expressed zero interest in working with them. Mm-hmm. But together they try and come up with the perfect sales pitch to bring on Jordan's mother, played by Viola Davis, who's well, and, and- I mean, a big part of this gamble is is the you know big part of why they don't want to do this is because uh you know what if he ends up not being a star? What if he you know right. and if you're going to spend your entire budget on somebody, you you hope that they're going to be a star. You you know you're banking on this guy coming into the NBA and doing well and having a successful long career, mm-hmm. um, you know, whereas if you spread it out, even if they're not as uh, attractive of names, the idea is you'll have some sort of safety net basically. And, right. And you can, you can have pull from across the spectrum of the sports world rather than just with one person. But mm-hmm. Uh, this is their vision. This is what they are going with. So they try and move heaven and earth to get Michael Jordan to sign with them and to redesign the first pair of Air Jordans in the late 80s. The very famous shoe. Yes. If you uh, were not around at that time. It still is. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, well, yeah, yeah. Air Jordan is is, is a, its own like brand. There's like different types of Air Jordans now. Right. And uh, I guess spoilers. <laughs> yeah, I was interested in this story mostly for the fact that Ben Affleck was directing, and I I've liked his previous films. I liked uh, God Baby Gone and The Town and Argo, and he's kind of been uh, mostly in front of the camera for the last little while. Yeah, pulled um, back into superheroes. Yeah, and amongst other things. And so I was excited to see his next project. There's a lot of cool character actors in this. So we see Chris Tucker, Chris Messina, uh, Jason Bateman, who has kind of lost his luster a little bit as well in mm-hmm. the world of Hollywood. 
Um, we get one great scene with uh, Marlon Wayans going back to uh, the D and D connection. Yeah. yeah. Actually, actually, his scene is so good in the movie that it's it's kind of a shame that he was only in it for like four but minutes. The, yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, it, you know, it's it's similar to, I think, kind of what we were talking about with um, Judd Hurst and the Fablemans, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it is just the one scene, but it it leaves an impact. Like it, like yeah. you said, it's it is a very good scene. Yeah, it, it's he's kind of a catalyst character in the same sort of way. The movie, I, I, here's the deal: it's it very much is what it is. It's a Two-hour film about a shoe deal. (laughs) And they try and create the great American film out of that. And they they try and suggest that it's about more than that. Like they, you know, that there's, they talk a lot about uh, Viola Davis's character, um, Jordan's mother and her, you know, her later work in helping uh, athletes have bigger roles in their branding deals and get, you know, better contracts, etc. And that is sort of an outgrowth of this story. But at the end of the day, this is basically a movie where people are talking in boardrooms or screaming over the phone to try and get a deal to be made. Hey man, they're fucking eight something seasons of entourage right like sure do not underestimate the power of people screaming into phones on tv uh i mean that's all succession is they just do it so fucking well right you're you're gripped to the screen because you're like i don't know what fucking deal they're talking about but i the drama is there right and 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 that's the thing that i'm not saying i'm not dismissing the content of the movie purely because it's about the making of Air Jordans. I think there's probably a story there that you could tell. Um, and the one they tell is fine enough. Uh, it does feel pretty small stakes, comparatively speaking. And I don't, I, I feel like whatever there is thematically about going with your gut. And, you know, seeing something through and against all odds, blah, blah, blah. I feel like it's a bit of a reach. Um, Especially trying to turn the story of Nike into the scrappy underdog story. (laughs) Um, I just don't, I don't know if I, I buy that, especially given what they've become. So there was my sure. two criteria walking into the movie. Okay. Was I wanted to know two things, uh, which would tell me the way they were going to decide to tell the story. Are they going to talk about the fact that their products are made overseas by in sweatshops? Um, because so. that is a big part of the Nike story and always has been. Um, I mean, that's a very different movie that I don't know. That's that's part of the Nike story. That's not part of the Michael Jackson or (laughs) Michael Jordan story. Right. And the other the other one being, 
are they going to talk about how Michael Jordan's kind of a jerk in real life? <laughs> and and he's sort of been heroized. Um, and I feel like the movie, the way we get one line from Jason Bateman talking about the sweatshops, which is more than I thought we would get. Okay. Now, he kind of like buries it in a monologue about taking care of his kids, mm-hmm. but it's kind of there. So, you know, for whatever whatever that's worth. Um, and then Jordan as a character is non-existent in this movie. They they make the conscious choice to never show him on camera, uh, to never yes. try and bring an actor in to do a, a young Michael Jordan performance or something like that. We always kind of get everything third-person perspective. We might see the back of his head a couple of times, but for the most part, you know, given the, what the movie is, uh, he is not even a character in his own story in this movie. Um, it's more about these, uh, middle-aged doughy white guys who work in a office in Portland. Um, and there's, so I, I, I want to nothing wrong with that, but go ahead. I, I, I want to talk about, uh, specifically the second point, um, First of all, you're psychotic walking into a movie like that. And you're just, I don't know. That's the psychotic way to watch a movie. Second of all, um, so the, the, I think the, the conscious choice to keep Michael Jordan off screen is very interesting. Uh, I, I feel like they, what the attempt was is to to mythologize Michael Jordan even further, right? Like, right. Uh, I you know I there's a reason he has the reputation of being the greatest athlete of all time, and and that is earned, you know. Um, yeah. And I think the choice of the movie to mythologize him is where you get the stakes, right? Like that's kind of the only real sense of stakes um, because, you know, they do talk about like, Oh, these people are going to lose their jobs, but you never really feel that tension. Um, It's more just like, you know, there's this, this person that we see that specifically Matt Damon sees the potential in and build him up to this, this larger than life status. And on one hand, I do think that is effective. Um, uh, On the other hand, it is sort of weird that like, you know, the, the story of success of one of the most successful, prominent black people in America is told through this lens of white guys in boardrooms. Uh, there is, I think a little bit of a, I don't know. There's a little bit of a weirdness there. Um, a little bit of because, a tone deaf quality to it. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I, it's in the reason why I brought up the sweatshop thing, which you're calling me psychotic for, is I feel like there's that that level of tone deafness across the board on all of its subject matter. So whether it's talking about Michael as a celebrity, as a sports person, mm-hmm. um. You know, whether to 
hide his personality or to just kind of keep him off camera because there was no way that they're going to be able to cast him exactly right in a way that's not going to pull you out of the film. I mean, sure, but but any biopic, right? Like, Right, everyone makes that choice. You, know, you have movies about Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and fucking Moses. Like, we can cast Michael Jordan. It is possible. It's, it's possible, yeah. So, I mean, there's that, but the reason why I was wondering if they would bring up the less than ethical elements of Nike and the shoe business as a whole and retail as a whole is because if it's not that, or if they don't address it in a meaningful way, then ultimately it's just this big circle jerk about consumerism and capitalism. And I mean, and it's all about like I, I don't you know, know what yay. You thought this movie was gonna be about like it. It becomes it becomes like just Nike? a celebration of a brand. It, yeah. it, in a way, it becomes basically a commercial for Nike. Um, I mean, sure, but here's the thing: you're you're thinking of it, I think, from the wrong frame of mind. They aren't what they're trying to do is they're making a sports movie without the sports, right? And Nike is the underdog team. Like, that's how they're trying to frame it. Right. They're not going to, I don't know where you would ever think they're going to try to do this, like, takedown of capitalism. And uh, I'm not saying that, that it has to be a takedown. What I'm saying is with the material that we have basically just becomes a celebration of crude business dealings. And that sort of white collar world of potential millionaires. And that's fine. If that's what you want to do, I think there's versions of that, that work better. Um, you know, I, I, I think you could say like the, the best version of something like this would be something like the social network. Um, which has a little bit more of a warts and all approach to it. Uh, yeah, I, I I feel like something like that has a little more to say. Um, right, I, I and that like... that's my issue is I don't feel like this movie, for all of its grandstanding, has much to say other than yay Nike, um, and yay Michael Jordan, and you know, I think there's things you could have done with this story, just expand it in certain places or shift the focus around a little bit. Um, you know, it, rather than Jason Bateman just giving us one monologue about like being a single father, like maybe show some of that, you know, sure. maybe show his stakes in all of this and what what it means for him to make these deals instead of just being a turnkey for Matt Damon's character. Maybe show more from Affleck's character other than being this kind of you know, Zen office manager. And I, I I think there's, there's even things you could do, you know, some of the stronger elements of the movie, I think are docudrama elements of it. Um, you know, the, the, the small scene you get with Damon going into the Seven Eleven and talking to his, to his, uh, grocer and, uh, you know, 
just shop talking shop about sports and stuff with him and kind of mm-hmm. getting the man on the ground perspective. Um, even the little bit we get with him, you know, gambling, there's, I think you could enrich these characters a little bit more and, and create something a bit more character centric, um, rather than just tightening so closely in on this one big fish they have to reel in. And I, I, I here, I, I have thing. other I, problems I with the di- movie too, even, but I don't even disagree with you. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think all the everything you're saying, yeah, would make for a better movie. Uh, I just don't think there's any world in which both Nike and the Jordan Estate would sign off on that because they're both very protective of their brands, and I just, I never, I never sort of expected more out of this movie. Um, but like I said, when we were watching the trailer, like, like that really is the movie. It's, it's that with some, some pretty good scenes sprinkled in between. Right. Um, I like, I feel like this is a pretty boilerplate sort of, like you said, uh, this sort of establishing of this brand story, um, that has these little moments that. I think is is what you wanted is is what what made you think there was more here right is there's these individual scenes that are really good like the the one with Marlon Wayans and mm. uh the one between Matt Damon and Viola Davis and um and the scene with uh Jason Bateman's little monologue like it's it's well done um so there's these moments that there's more there, but really to the story, there isn't like that's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's kind of engineered in the opposite way. You know, it's, it's the thing, the stuff that the movie should be focusing on, it becomes window dressing to, yeah. You know, what could be told in a scene or two. Um, and, and, you know, generally speaking, I do kind of like this more limited scope with these type of stories uh, rather than, you know, tell the entire Nike story from the beginning of its establishment to, you know, all the way up to 2023. Um, and then you just have this big sprawling episodic mess. I do like finding a key moment where things change and it, but in doing that, I don't feel like it locks into anything that feels like a real zeitgeist. Instead, it actually feels like it's kind of clanging against the zeitgeist. And I, that's, I agree with you. That's and, and a I more of like, an issue for me. I, I feel like I want, I personally wanted this to be more of a Michael Jordan story, right? Like he is, uh, he is a fascinating person. I think, uh, yeah, uh, there's, there's a whole 30 for 30, like sports center documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, I haven't seen many of them, but, um, I watched his is really good. It's very well done. Uh, and his story is just, you know, 
again, there's a reason he has absolutely earned his reputation as the greatest basketball player, uh, you know, to ever play the game. And I think we could do more than that than just how he got his shoes. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, I liked that scene. I like the scene with the shoe tech designing the shoes. Again, it was another one of those like, oh, this is a really fun scene. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of just doesn't really amount to anything more. And I think there is definitely more to that story. Like, say what you will about him as a person. He is literally like one of the few actual American success stories. And you could do something with that. <laughs> yeah, I think the fear becomes... You know, if you integrate him more as a character, then he begins to, you know, well, sure. steal the air from the rest of the movie. But, uh, but but here's the thing. At that point in his career, he wasn't that guy yet, right? Like, right. that guy was there, but he wasn't built into it yet. Uh, and, and I think that's why we both liked King Richard, right? Is the, I thought the about Williams. that movie a lot watching this. I was like, that movie... It's the better version of this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I thought of as well because because in focusing on on the father, you know, they're the celebrity that gets built into them for being these famous athletes isn't there yet. And and it's this story of how they became those people. And I feel like you could have incorporated that into this story yeah especially with viola davis's character even if you didn't want to include a lot of michael jordan in the movie i think if you'd included more of her and sure. it had been more well, than and, just and the, and, two scenes um, and his dad like mm -hmm. you know michael jordan had a, a very close relationship with his father and, and he was murdered and they they kind of allude to that uh but like not in any sort of meaningful way. And you have to know the history there to understand it. Like, I, I feel like this movie had more Easter eggs than Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, they're just sports Easter eggs. And right. I only knew them because I watched this documentary, which I feel like is, is a much more satisfying uh, uh, watch. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of great performances in here, but I don't, to me, it never uh, succeeds in becoming more than the sum of its parts. Um, also, yeah. on a technical level, I have to say, you know, I like I like uh, Ben Affleck. This is not his strongest work. Um, every no. scene, and I, I understand, like I said, it's a lot of scenes of people talking in boardrooms or arguing over the phone. So he tries to find these ways to make them more cinematic. And I feel like he throws everything in the kitchen sink into every single sequence to the point sure. where they start to stand out to me. They're not, they're not inv invisible choices anymore where he's racking focus or he's doing something weird with the angle or he has the characters placed in the frame in a peculiar way, or he's doing these 360 whip pans to try and keep the audience engaged. And it starts to feel gimmicky really fast. And then the needle drops. My God, this is yeah. Was, 
Was this movie set in the eighties? I I, I, I think it know. was. No, I I yeah. I think and most so. of the time they're not thematic. Like they're the lyrics don't mean like you know he's traveling across country to to have a conversation with with uh, uh, Mrs. Jordan and they're playing the song Big Country. <laughs> okay, yeah. I guess. Or the Night Rider scene, or just every single time they cut to a new thing, there's a new like needle drop, and it's so lazy. Yeah, I, I. It feels like somebody just skipping around on a playlist. Well, what honestly, what it felt like was instead of doing establishing shots, we're just going to use the intro for "I Love the '80s," and we'll just like cut that in there. Yeah, uh, it, it, yeah, it, it was meant to sort of give a sense of time, I think. But it, I agree, it completely overshoots it uh, and and gets kind of annoying. Um, I mean, that is to say, like, I didn't hate this movie. It's, no, it's I didn't either. I think it's <laughs> I think its biggest crime is that it is fairly watchable um, and. It, instead of luring you in with this pop sensibility to to tell a, a bigger story it it's just kind of all there like i said if you've seen the trailer and you liked the trailer i think you'll enjoy this enough like it's it's not boring it's not bad it's just i, I do i yeah i think there's potential for it to be a lot more yeah that's that's where it comes down for me it's just sort of the lost potential because I think there's there's more to do than what we see here. But again, a good collection of performances. Um, what do you give it? It's like on the border of a C plus and a B minus. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to give it a B minus, so you can land in the C plus category. Okay, it's probably that's, that's our little, dynamic. A little bit more honest as far as where I'm at with it. So. Let's go ahead and discuss the streaming homework on HBO Max. We watched the 1964 film A Hard Day's Night. So why don't you go ahead and describe the film as best as you can? So this is, it's kind of a concert movie, but it's also like, uh, it's like if um, they put a concert movie and um, like the 60s version of Get Him to the Greek into one thing, right? Like they'll play a Beatles song and then there's just these sort of little Beatles adventures that they have be before they have this big gig on TV, right? So yeah. that's it. They roll into town, they play music, they get chased by girls, and, uh, you know, their manager has a hard time keeping tabs on them because they're young wascals, um, and they're always getting into Beatles shenanigans, <laughs> um, and they're 
uh, was it John Lennon's fucking grandpa is there is this horny old man uh, who's getting them into trouble purposely, but they can't keep their eyes on him. Um, and it's it's all this just sort of what happens to them before this big gig. Uh, and that's kind of it. That's kind of the movie. Yeah. So this was a shot during the height of Beatlemania. Right as, you know, right after the first couple Beatles records, uh, the movie closes with, um, with the, I want to hold your hand or she loves you. Yeah. She was their biggest you. hit. Yeah. yeah. Was their biggest hit at the time. So even though Hard Day's Night, uh, in and of itself, the soundtrack to the, to the movie has a brand new set of tracks that are played through a couple times. Um, we still end with their biggest hit at the time. So this is right at the, that point where they were still very much uh, a young, for lack of a better word, boy band. I don't think <clears> it's for lack of a better word. I mean, that's what they were like. That's that was their appeal. I, I mean, there's a there's like a six minute long shot of just girls screaming in the crowd when they're performing their final song like that. Just because they, you know, were talented doesn't make them not a boy band like a big right. part of their selling factor at this time was that they were these four cute British lads that, you know, they were the Jonas Brothers. They were the Backstreet Boys. Like it was just it was just different circumstances that made them that. Right. Yeah. They, uh, as far as our origins go, they weren't manufactured by a record yeah. company. You know, they 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 formed organically and then were very much sort of tailored to an audience. Uh, to be yes, to to yeah. appeal to the youth, they weren't and, grown in a lab, right? And I, and I think that this movie, what it's trying to do outside of you know keep up with the momentum of the Beatles, is talk a little bit about this growing counterculture and its yeah. connection to rock and roll. Well, for I. I mean, yeah, in throughout the movie, you know, there are these four young lads who are very cheeky. They they sort of reject authority at every, you know, it's very 60s, early 60s rock and roll, right? Like, right. we're not going to listen to you, Mr. Manager, because you're a... And they keep calling him <laughs> swine. A pig, swine, you're swine. Uh, right? So I, I get Here's the thing. I fucking hated this movie, um, but I'm I'm chalking it up mostly to just like cultural circumstances. Right. Like I am a grown ass man in 2023. This was meant for 16 year old girls in 1964. It, uh, it's right. British. Like there's there's a lot of cultural misses here for me. Uh, it also just their accents are so thick and a lot of time what they were talking about was so culturally irrelevant to me because it's so British, uh, that I, I just never got a foothold on this. Like I, I never, it's I, not the most narrative film ever made. Um, no, it's not. I, I, mean, I mean, it is 
just it's, meant to set up their performances. And I mean, the music's great. Yeah. And it's mostly designed around, you know, showing a day in the life or mm-hmm. the, a fictionalized day in the life. It is, I would, I would call it a comedy of sorts. I think that is what yeah. it is going for. It's, it's um, meant to be funny and charming and and light. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you get a, ra- a spectrum of acting capability from the Beatles themselves. Um, I, d- I do love, uh, I mean, I had a hard time telling a lot of them apart. Um, the only one that really looks different to me at, at in this time period is uh, Paul McCartney. Cause he's always looked like a fucking owl. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, I do love that. I, I can kind of feel George Harrison's disdain throughout the entire movie. Like, you can tell he's just like doesn't give a fucking shit about this. I I, I don't think uh, any of them did. I, I I think you know if you were to ask them, they didn't buy any of this for a minute. Oh sure, yeah. Like they you know they did it for they did it for the I money or they did it for the publicity. But they, George, George Harrison and his scenes, like you can feel it, you can see it. Like he's not even pretending, and you get that a little bit with John Lennon too. Whereas yeah. I feel like Paul McCartney and Ringo are kind of like buying into it a little bit more. They're they're a little bit more natural hams. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> especially, I, I actually think that uh, Paul McCartney is probably the best actor of the bunch. Yeah. Um, and then Ringo, I think if there were if there was a narrative somewhere in here outside of just the day in the life stuff, you, the last third of the movie kind of plays like a Goodbye Charlie Brown. Kind of story where yeah, Ringo and, and like wanders off and tries to do and his own thing. There's this element for a bit. of like he's too innocent and he needs to like kind of become his own. Like there's a little bit of that in there. That yeah, I agree. That that was probably the most I was enjoying the movie. Um, it would have been if they were to approach this from a more narrative standpoint rather than just kind of hit the beats of we want to see them here, there and, you know, doing their thing and put them on stage as much as possible. That would have mm-hmm. been the way to go is to kind of tell that story or extend that bit longer yeah. and make it all about the gang having to get Ringo back. Yeah. Um, uh, that felt like when the movie started, to be honest, instead of all this weird stuff with the grandpa, because they, they kind of <laughs> do that with the grandpa, right? Where there's all this story about John Lennon being like, where's my grandpa? Where's he at? And he, the grandpa's always getting into shenanigans. Cut out grandpa, put Ringo in that position, and then you have a movie. Yeah. So one of the reasons I wanted to watch this, besides the fact that it's, you know, a well-known movie that I hadn't seen, um, this is uh, directed by Richard Lester, uh, who at the time um, was part of the kitchen sink realism movement or the British New Wave um, that was kind of concurrent with the uh, French New Wave or Italian New Wave that was kind of happening around the same time. He had made the really? film... Uh, he had made the film uh, The Knack and How to Get It, which is kind of like the more 
I think the more successful version of this, instead of about the Beatles, you have these this group of mods um, who are running around town and chasing sure. after girls and, you know, have thumbing their nose at authority, etc. Um, Richard Lester would later go on to become a successful filmmaker in America. He uh, did Superman 2 after Richard Donner left the project. Okay. Um, and I, I think even though this movie is basically a, a big commercial for the Beatles, I think there's still a lot here from that British New Wave moment, both in the way that it's shot and the little bit of cultural context that we can glean from it. Sure. Um, and what it's saying about sort of the youth uh, at that time. Yeah. And, and I mean, and, that was also the thing that I, a, a lot of the humor was where they would lose me. Cause sure. I, I just wouldn't get a lot of the jokes and stuff, but that feeling of youth rebellion, I could understand, you know, I, I was like, I get this. Everything else feels just sort of like a fucking alien language to me. Um, but I get that that we're young. We don't want to listen to what the old squares have to say. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of what he's trying to why he was attached to the project in the first place and to, to tell the story that way. Now, obviously, you can see the influence of this on something like the monkeys television show. Sure. I mean, um, yeah, that's a lot of what it was doing there. I mean, there's more of like a, a, uh, Americanized sitcom version of it, mm-hmm. but, uh, with a laugh track and all of that stuff. But I mean, it certainly we're pulling heavy from this. Well, um, but, I, but I mean, you know, if we keep going even further, right. Like then, you can see the DNA uh, translating to something like this is Spinal Tap, which is right. more of a direct mockumentary. And then you can see it being attached to something like Pop Star, which I love. You know what I mean? Which is just full absurdist, uh, you know, celebrity, fake celebrity narrative. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, even in the style of this movie, um, I think you can see a lot of you can see a lot of where Wes Anderson picks up his his sure. cues. The big sequence in the opening of the film with them on the train and uh it's kind of creating this long corridor proscenium for these people to act within. Yeah. Feels reminding me a lot of the stuff from Darjeeling Limited. Um, well, and, and I mean, the whole intro thing, right? The whole chase sequence was parodied in, in Austin Powers. Both of those, the, you know, the first two movies, both of them are directly like parodying this. Yes. And I, and I do think it's a handsome movie. The cinematographer Gilbert Taylor would later go on to to be the cinematographer for Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy, uh, The Omen, a little movie called Star Wars, A New Hope. Oh, damn. Um, Yeah, the Flash Gordon movie. 
I mean, it so. it does look good. It's like I just thought it was pretty boring. Like you know, for again, I feel like any sort of sense of story didn't start till the last twenty minutes. And other than that, I was like, just get to the song, right? Like, just right. get to the next song. Yeah, and, and I think I think part of that is the movie's not really interested in doing much more than that. Yeah. Um, and the other other part is I think as a narrative style, this is kind of the first we're seeing of this. Like there's this sure. this sort yeah. of idea of like a rock and roll film starring the person. I mean, you had the Elvis movies, but those were kind of different. Um, yeah, well, yeah, and this was sort of more built around an actual album, right? Whereas, like those right. the American, like the Elvis stuff was, we have this movie that we're going to shove Elvis into to you know, just to make the movie more successful. That that was more of the just the traditional celebrity model, I feel. Yeah, I mean they did he, they had him play his songs and stuff like that. Sure, so. but like you you get Elvis, you're gonna do what Elvis does, right? You're gonna get him to play music, but it's still we're gonna get Elvis to be in this thing to make money. I don't know. I, it just feels so weird. It's just such a weird, like, I, I feel like you would not see anything remotely like this in a theater these days. No, not, uh, not intentionally. Like you said, something, I, I think you can see where, where the influence of something like this on later stuff. Absolutely. Um, but Beyonce's lemonade, right? Sure. A, a very timely reference. Uh, her, <laughs> you know, came out, what, eight years ago? I don't know. Something um, like that. Uh, but, it, you know, it was this sort of, like, concept album thing. Not in theaters. You know what I mean? Like, you had to mm -hmm. download it on Tidal or watch it on YouTube or whatever. It, musical artist celebrity stuff doesn't have the same pull for cinema that it kind of did then. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, every once in a while, they'll release a documentary or something like that, like the Katy sure. Perry documentary or the Justin Bieber documentaries or whatever. But for the most part, um, you don't you don't have sort of a attempted genre with with a real life group yes. in this kind of way. It, it's always meant to nowadays. It's meant to be more. There's no uh, novelty to it anymore. Yeah. Now it's meant to be more behind the scenes. Like you're in this situation with them. Whereas, you know, bef back then it was exactly it, it was we're going to make a genre out of this. We're going to fictionalize their story. I don't know. It's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend this lightly to anybody. Um, I think obviously if you're a fan of the Beatles. And I mean, you, it, you've probably already seen it. Yeah, I mean, you you love all their music, and you just want you want to listen to it in this sort of format. Obviously, that is one way to go. Um, but if uh, if you're just watching it, I think sort of on a whim, it is going to be a tougher sell. Maybe if 
maybe less so if you're from England, although I don't know like what the cultural differences yeah, I don't would know be how or dated oh. these jokes are. I, I, I yeah, yeah or, or how specifically English. I mean, it feels very specifically English. Yes. Um, and then for the people who saw this, so I would say somebody like you who could see, could appreciate some aspects of it, but feel like it's all, uh, not enough substance, I would say check out Lester's other movie, The Knack and How to Get It, because I think that's the funnier, tighter, more focused version of something like this. Specifically, I, I, kind of um, has a uh, uh, cultural pr perspective of like the English mod culture and all of that. I appreciate this as a strange artifact. Mm -hmm. I just I felt like I did not need to watch the whole, you know, uh, ninety minutes of it or whatever. Like I, it just got really boring to me. That that's the problem. Is the first hour is i think uh, again other than the performances which are great uh it's just very boring and i was just sort of counting down the minutes until they played another song mm -hmm. um i i found a little more charm in it near the end when there was some semblance of story but again i do i do think that there is such a weird hit rich history of music movies that just kind of died off. Um, so I, I think it's interesting as a look at this thing that exists. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting that nobody's really tried to do that in a while. I mm -hmm. mean, outside of like the Bieber documentaries or whatever. Um, uh, well, they, they make I mean, it, I Jonas mean, Brothers it, had Camp Rock, which was like a direct-to-Disney kind of thing. Well, that, that's what I was going to say. It exists now in weird, weird ways, but it's all for YouTube, right? It's all just content now. It's not uh, – they, they don't try to make it like a, a story per se. Well, the, I think there's less of a – for better and worse, there's less of a monoculture than there used to be. I think people, you can disappear through whatever algorithm that you live in. You can sure. disap disappear into your own subgroup or your own interests, uh, both musically and cinematically, that it's hard to think of somebody who's that type of famous now that you could do that with. You know, I mean, there's people yeah. who, who, have hundreds of millions of plays on YouTube or on Spotify who mean absolutely nothing to somebody, you know, else oh, in their family. Uh, uh, Mr. Beast is one that I've been I like hearing his name a lot on Twitter. I literally, I, I know he's very famous on YouTube yeah. or something, uh, but I, I, Literally, I could not tell you what he looks like. I know nothing about him. Uh, I, I literally, I only know the name. Um, but I, yeah, I think he's the most subscribed person right now. I don't know. I'm, but like, I don't really, I'm not really in tune with like YouTube culture, but, but that speaks to what exactly what you're talking about, right? Like, yeah, 
Like there is no Beatles now. There is no like, I mean, even, even amongst the artists that sell the best, you, one could maybe say Taylor Swift is probably the closest that across mm. a large swath of the public, you could, you could sell her in he, that, here's the that thing. same sort of way. Whatever the, whatever is the Beatles now, we're too old and we don't have teenagers, so we won't we won't know about it. Well, never say never. I mean, if <laughs> when, when they do the 100 Gex movie, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what words you said. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, okay, so what did you have for our streaming homework next week? Uh, we're going to watch the movie She Said on Peacock, um, the, uh, um, drama about breaking the Harvey Weinstein story, so. Yes, not named after the Beatles song, although, well, I wonder if they'll play it in the, in the movie. <laughs> 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 um. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Um, okay, yes, that came out last year, but uh, we're catching up with it now, so it's on Peacock, I believe you said? Yes, it's on uh, Peacock, so you have to watch some commercials at the very beginning, but once you're through it, you're through it. I love their model. And if anybody has anything to say about anything we've talked about on this episode or previous, you can check out our social media over at uh twitter and instagram at mcguffin pod we also i just started us a tiktok for as long as that's still a thing we can do in watch america us, yeah until it gets <laughs> banned watch yeah. us do the backpack kid dance because we are so <laughs> in touch <laughs> there's two things i i've uploaded already i i put a clip uh from our creed 3 discussion which got like 500 plus views. And, I don't think uh, that means anything. <laughs> in the world of TikTok, probably not. But, you know, I thought for for first thing, 83 likes and 500 views. I was I was thought it was nice for just throwing that up there. And then I did a little you know thing what? for Easter. Um, yeah. So uh, follow us there. Uh, we're going to be posting more clips and stuff from the show. Um, and, uh, uh, you can also email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. If you want to leave us a longer thought or give us some suggestions for, uh, movie topics that you would like to hear us talk about or, uh, streaming homework that we haven't done on the show previous. Um, we're always open to suggestion and, uh, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on iTunes or Spotify or Windows Podcast, whatever app you use to listen to us on. And uh, you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. Um, and uh, be sure to read the reviews I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal movie reviews or Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. And I think that's it. 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Keith Foster Kid. And um, if you're in the San Diego area, check out, um, come see me perform live at Mockingbird Improv. Uh, I do the show Improv versus Stand Up. Okay, and that is the episode. That is one pudgy dragon. Bye.